0: Determines your value. Your value as a man or a woman, should that be the case. It used to be that guys were defined by their work and women by their homes. Some guys would become workaholics, a few friends like that. Some women would stress out over the tiniest detail in the house or with their kids. These roles are not necessarily the case anymore. We all know that, especially in America, and for many, looks define you. Facial structure, women with pretty high cheekbones and beautiful full lips simply go further in life. Uh, As a general rule, men with strong square jaws and vibrant blue eyes are more likely to be elected. That's just the truth. (laughs) Height can contribute to perceived value. According to the Journal of Applied Psychology, volume 89, number 3, each inch above average may be worth $789 more per year. Each inch. Wow. If you don't feel valuable, try makeup. According to a 2017 video by Money Magazine, the average woman will spend $43 on a shopping trip for makeup. Not a lot, but listen to what people.com writer said. What really gave us a shock was discovering that a woman spends $15,000 on beauty products in her lifetime. Out of that money, 3770 is spent on mascara alone. Another 2,750 is allotted to eyeshadows and 1,780 is dedicated to new lipsticks. Understand that all women wear makeup like this, so that means some of them are spending a lot more than this. If all these numbers seem almost unbelievable, consider that the entire beauty industry is worth an astounding 382 billion globally, annually. $382 billion a year. I do really like the last statement they made. Whoever said you can't put a price on beauty was clearly misinformed. (laughs) Nearly $400,000 million spent every year to do what? Improve our face value. (laughs) Maybe make us feel more valuable. The general population seems hypersensitive about their value as human beings. The attempt to define marriage as a union, well, between any number of people of any gender, isn't just about a perverted lust for sex. It also has to do with these people's desire to feel valuable, no matter how artificially that feeling is derived. But even traditional marriage is often Maybe usually entered into more for making me feel better, me feel valuable, than about serving the other person. A woman might say, Somebody loves me. I must be worth something. When a man captures a desirable woman, he figures it's because he's a better man than all those other guys. Instead of what's in it for me, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone thought, How do I live for the other person? person's good in this relationship. Even in dating, if we can remember back that far, it was, and come on, admit it, driven more by a desire to impress our buddies uh, or have feelings of belonging than by (laughs) true love. And again, what? So we do things to prove or improve our perceived value. Hey, hey, we're fallen people, okay <laughs> And emotionally unhealthy people, ooh, they may do things that are ultimately destructive to themselves, let alone to others. Adrenaline junkies often gravitate to extreme sports to show how gutsy, how rare, how valuable they are to feel alive. Did you know? this is true it's going to amaze you. There are people from America who think that being taller will make them more valuable. They've, they've actually flown to other countries and had surgery done to increase their height. Kid you not, this is actually something that happens. And it's it's quite properly illegal here. It should be. It's, but they do it. Uh, there's perceived value in height. And what about uh, <clears throat> Width. <laughs> People who think their with makes them less valuable may resort to astonishingly detrimental behavior, eating disorders, uh, major dangerous surgeries even. Many people spend money they shouldn't and maybe don't even have to inflate their own egos. Some seek for domination of others. <laughs> to be the boss is to be important, right? And it's to be better, There are bullies at school, overbearing managers at work, master of the house, or even abusive men or women at home. All these things just to inflate their self-perceived value. And those who despair of ever achieving the status of valuable, they drown the sting inferiority in ways that are often even lethal. Alcohol and drugs being the most obvious weapons of choice. But extreme weight gain, poor relational choices, uh, lots of things can be just as bad. But even people who are emotionally healthy can look to what they do or who they know to form their perception of value in themselves. Physically, they eat right and exercise until they truly are wondrous specimens of masculinity or femininity. It's a good thing to do. But why? Why are they doing it? Some pursue intellectual superiority. It's wonderful to be educated to the highest level in whatever field one thinks is important. But for what purpose? Even in a spiritual sense, many Press to show their value. Doing good deeds to prove that they are good. Good deeds are good to do. But why do them? All these things. Does doing any of them actually make a person valuable? Now, none of the destructive behaviors should ever be a part of a Christian's life for sure. But should we not work to keep our bodies vibrant? Uh, Should we abandon education and let our brains atrophy? I mean, is the effort of good works a futile pursuit of self-glorification? There's something about doing things and our value. In an odd way, all these people with what they are doing, overworking, (laughs) excessive cleaning, makeup, and on and on and on, They're right, but not the way they think they are. (laughs) Let's say it this way. What we do does not create value in us, but it very well might demonstrate our value. And the ultimate measure of our value? (laughs) Our standing with our Creator. So when one guy says to another, Man up! (laughs) Do the right thing! He may be looking at it all wrong, But he might not be terribly far from the truth. For us, instead of doing things to try to make ourselves someone of value, we should do things simply because we are people of value. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Man up. (laughs) Live a life that is worthy of the good news of Christ. Live your life in such a way that people ask, why? Why do you live the life you live? By the way, since we're now actually in the Scripture, (laughs) I'll let you in on a little secret. Paul is playing a word game here. You may recall from our introductory discussion of this book that, that citizenship was a really big deal. In Philippi, it was one of the few free cities in the Roman Empire, but only Roman citizens directly benefited from this privilege. And Roman citizens were often, there's no nice way to say this, really confident that they were better than everyone else. (laughs) That they had more value simply because they were citizens. Or rather, they are citizens because they are worth more. And everyone who is not a citizen. So when any other citizen wasn't performing up to their standards, guess what they'd say? Act like a citizen! Really, that was their man up. It actually became a phrase that meant live up to the expectations of your position, a person of your value. Oh, well, hey, wait, but Paul's Writing a letter to the church. People were actually saying that in the church? Sounds like it. But here's the fun part Paul uses their phrase but redirects it towards Christ. Only be a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ is what he actually says. Be a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he didn't have to say it that way. He could have said it like he did to the Ephesian church. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But now he got them right where they live. (laughs) Later, he torques their minds a little further by telling them our citizenship does not reside here at all. (laughs) It resides in heaven. But we can talk about that now. I, I have to save it or I won't have anything to preach when we get to that point. So back to chapter one. They'd been worried about whether they'd ever see Paul again. He was concerned that they live right even if they don't see him again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. This guy does love his chiasms. One spirit, one mind. Mind is psyche, which can also be translated soul or life or person. So it's obvious Paul is talking unity in purpose, in life, in spirit. And the purpose, the faith of the gospel. We need to live worthy of the good news. Our single-minded focus, our striving together, must be the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. Striving side by side is language used to describe the efforts of an athletic team. Not surprising. Uh, He used the same kind of language in verse 30. We'll get to it shortly. But the point here, stand firm in purpose as you work together as a team. Remember what Paul said earlier about his imprisonment? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And when people made trouble for him by preaching the gospel, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul wants to see Christ proclaimed. And he wants them to strive together with this same single-minded focus. He's not alone in this thought. Jude, Jesus' brother, wrote, Beloved, although I am very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Man up. (laughs) Contend for the faith. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation. And that from God. Don't be frightened by what they do. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The good news of Jesus will be proclaimed in all the world. So you might as well man up. (laughs) Be a part of this proclamation. But what did he mean this is a clear sign? What's a clear sign? That we're not afraid. We're not afraid of what they can do to us. We're going to live the good news no matter what they do. Earlier, Paul had written to the church in Corinth about the success of the evangelistic work he and his team were having in the midst of trouble. But thanks be to God who is who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one a fragrance from death to death the other a fragrance from life to life when those who choose death see life the stench of death is all the greater in contrast when those who choose life strive together fireworks of joy erupt we are saved man up (laughs) our salvation is sure it is because it is from god God is on our side. Who can stand against us? Theological scholar Dr. Silva wrote, The true grounds for the Philippians' encouragement was the profound conviction that nothing in their experience took place outside of God's superintendence. Whatever happens, God knows and allows it to happen in our lives but it's going to be okay. We win in the end because we're with God. And God always wins. Well, God always wins. Well, He's God. What else would happen? Paul went on to say, For it has been granted to you that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also... Suffer for his sake. (laughs) Oh, goody. (laughs) I like the believe, the saved part, but suffer? Why should we stand firm in purpose, work tightly together, not frightened by our opponents when we know it means suffering? Because we have this grant from God. Granted comes from the same Greek root as grace. (laughs) Suffering is a gift. A gift. <laughs> and Yes, our ability to believe in him and our suffering for him. Both gifts. Nowhere else in the New Testament it said just like this, but the concept is everywhere. Here's a single example. And we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Paul was using we for himself out of politeness. But the truth is, we are going to suffer affliction when we spread the good news. So buckle up and man up. (laughs) Live like you're supposed to, no matter what. But there is... I suppose this will not surprise you, another possible wrong way to look at suffering for Christ. Dr. Silva covers both in this really good paraphrase of Philippians 1.29. The conflicts that you are experiencing may appear frightening and thus threaten to discourage you, but you cannot allow that to happen. Perhaps you are tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad omen, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. But that is exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as evidence of God's design to save you. Why? Because suffering is the way to glory. God's gift of salvation for his children. Suffering is not, in and of itself, good. God turns the evil of this world on its head and brings good out of it. Specifically, our salvation and our growth, sanctification, within our life of salvation. Let's read the verse again in its original form. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. For the sake of Christ. Let's jump ahead in this letter to maybe get a fuller sense of where Paul's going with this. Indeed, I count everything as loss that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Believe, but also suffer. Share in what Christ suffers. It won't feel good. (laughs) But we will be more like Him afterwards. Man up, take the hit. (laughs) Do what is right. This is a war, after all. Satan and his demons beat against us every day. Suffer for Christ's sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. When Paul was in Philippi, they saw him fight for Christ, which landed him in jail. (laughs) And now he's in jail again. In Rome, in the midst, one might say, of the lion's den. But still he said, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was in a different battle. But it's the same war the Philippian church was in. We, you and I, are in the same war as believers the world over. Different battles. But the same war. And not just a war of today. We're in the same war that the Philippians were in. The same war Paul was in. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if these are the signs that God has chosen them, that they are soldiers in the war, if they were truly His. If we today find any encouragement in Christ, if we find comfort from love, if we have any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these things show that we are on the right side of the war. Comfort from love. Do you remember what he wrote? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This participation in the Spirit? Yeah, they had it. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. They had experienced affliction with Paul. Now they stood with him in his affliction with their prayers. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't asking if they were saved. He was reminding them how they could know they were saved. And how you should know. Paul said to them, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Complete my joy. This is the main clause grammatically. It's the glue that holds the other statements together. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Complete my joy. Joy... But for someone else. At the beginning of this letter, Paul said he prayed for them with joy. Their proper Christian behavior gave joy to someone else. Paul, in this case. Others too, I'm sure. The point I want to mention is that joy comes in Christian community. Which is here described. Mind, love accord, same mind. He starts and ends with the mind. He's already talked about this, but he's building his case. Have that single-minded focus on the telling of the good news of Jesus Christ. All believers should have this as their primary thought. And we will, if we get the middle two. Same love, full accord. We're pretty good at understanding the powerful love to which Paul refers. The willingness to sacrifice one's life for those we are given to love. Our minds need to be focused together on this. Full accord could be translated soul joined and not, of course, like the foolish Hollywood soulmate idea that there isn't just one person out there who could ever be your soulmate. We, as those who have faith in Christ Jesus, are commanded to join our souls with all the others who have a like faith. Okay, not all the others, at least not instantly. Uh, we are not infinite. <laughs> we're only human and can only deal with just so many people. Don't try to go too far. Uh, and this is obviously not the same thing as BFFs forever, like we're a bunch of junior high girls. And also, only God can see the heart. Not everyone who says they believe actually believes. They may not even know it themselves. But the point that we must see is that same love and full accord define one in the same mind. If our minds are unified in their focus on Jesus, on Jesus Christ, then we will have the same love and be in full accord. If we have the same love and are in full accord, then our minds will be unified in their focus on Jesus Christ. So, man up, <laughs> have one in the same mind which will be demonstrated as we share the same love in full accord. And then we will be able to follow the next command. If we have one in the same mind demonstrated as we share the same love and in full accord, then we will be able to follow this command. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. No rivalry or conceit, but humility. Humility is the key to Christian unity. No humility, no community. The true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self centeredness doctor silver wrote and may i please repeat that the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion but self-centeredness certainly rivalry and conceit mark those who do not have encouragement in christ comfort from love participation in the spirit affection and sympathy rivalry and conceit mark those who are not Humble. Could it be that there are believers out there trying to prove they are better than someone else? Even someone else in the church? Could some true Christians really believe that they are better than others? Even others in the church? If they do, they stifle community and the joy that grows out of community. And if there were some believers in Philippi acting out of rivalry and conceit, this must have really stung because Paul had already talked about those who proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's why Paul said to count others more significant than yourselves. All right? If there is someone who is a Christian and thinks they are more significant than other Christians or thinks that they should get more attention than others, that's what rivalry is, then stop it. (laughs) Behave, Paul says, as if you really were humble. (laughs) It's your duty. Man up and do it. (laughs) Remember that most famous definition of love. Let me remind you of a piece of it, the very center of that description Love does not insist on its own way. Paul does not say, I want you to feel like doing this, and once you do, then consider others before yourself. No, he just says, do it. <laughs> so let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The only isn't there in the Greek. But almost every translation has it. Why? Because they all feel, and I think correctly, that Paul intended to say this. It would be what's called an ellipsis. Uh, you leave out a word that you know everybody will know is supposed to be there. Uh, it's probably correct in this case. I think it is. But it's curious that Paul should leave the only out. It's not that big of a word to write. <laughs> what well, gives. We all know the golden rule. There back when Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt, God had had him tell them, love others as you love yourself. Point being, if you're not loving yourself, how can you love others? So why did Paul say, look not to your own interests without the only? Well, obviously, for emphasis, quit trying to take care of yourself so much that you forget others. Don't forget that Paul had just said, count others more significant than yourself. Well, I'm not going to church anymore because those people can't get it right. You ever heard that? Anyone who says that is counting themselves as more significant than others. Pastor, you've done gone to meddling now. I'm not going to volunteer anymore because they... Duh, 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 whatever. I'm not going to give anything else because blah, 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 blah. Man up! (laughs) Do the right thing anyway. Live for others before you live for yourself. Paul doesn't say do it because you feel like it. He doesn't say do it because it makes you feel good. He does say have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. People, if we are His... We will do this. We need to be like Christ. He died for the very people who were screaming, crucify him. And we don't want to love the other people in the church because why? We don't want to bind our souls to other believers because we don't want to help to tell people about Christ because what? We need to man up and do what's right because that is Christ's mindset. Man up, ladies, please forgive me for using this gender-based command. But I'm a guy, and let's face it, women are much better at translating thoughts for men than the other way around. So I wrote this for men. But I want to get back to where we started. Why do we do what we do? Is it to gain or prove our value? I'm speaking now to believers. Do we do what we do simply because God told us to? Because it's the right thing to do? Or are we still playing that worldly game of trying to inflate our own egos? Do our actions make us more valuable to our Creator? Well, no, of course not but they might demonstrate the value that He places on us and that He places in us. will demonstrate to whom? Well, to the world, of course, and to others in the church. But our actions will also demonstrate our value to well, ourselves. The most sure way to know that you have value in Christ is to do the things that He requires of you. When we do what we are supposed to do, having a single-minded purpose, sharing His love, joining our souls to one another, we find our value demonstrated over and over again. We begin to feel the value that our Creator and Savior places on us. We truly begin to feel our value. Well-lived Christian unity builds our perception of God's value in us. And then it becomes easier and easier to say with Paul, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died, and was raised. Does it matter what you do for work (laughs) or how you build your home if your value isn't in Christ? It matters not what you look like, how tall you are or skinny or beautiful, whether you are happily attached to some other person does not reflect your value if your value is in Christ where it should be. Nothing you do, nothing you say adds a whit to the value God has placed on you. For that value is as great as the life of Christ. So, let your manner of life be worthy of the good news of Christ. But could you possibly be more valuable with your mind living in unity of purpose with and true love for your brothers and sisters in Christ to advance the good news of Christ. Man up and just do it. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you that you have given us, your Son, that we were valuable in Your eyes to the point where You allowed Your own Son to die a horrible death on a cross because He alone could make it through death and come out the other side and, and bring us with Him. Thank You, Father, for that. I ask that You help each of us, men and women alike, to do the thing that's right, to do what You command us. Help us, Lord, to live that way. We thank You. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person. If not in Westport, at least in the rapture.